0: It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since
1: 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you.
0: In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book
1: character created by Michael Bond. I love those films so much.
0: Hugh Grant is
1: perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions.
0: It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> it didn't
1: mean literally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse and the two Breaking Dawn
1: parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film.
0: We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels.
1: Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series love these extended editions all the way maybe plus all the mission impossible
0: films based on the 1960s tv series
1: and we've still got at least one more to go
0: members got to hear us chat about the hustler and the color of money adapted from walter tevis's books
1: get all of these books and more at our originals page thenextreelcom slash originals
0: start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals
1: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy
0: Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. John Wick, Chapter 2 is over. Consider this a professional courtesy.
1: Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. Two. And what style?
0: Tactical. Mr. Wick, do enjoy your party. How good to see you again so soon. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun?
1: Whoever comes, I'll kill them all. The man, the myth,
0: the legend.
1: John Wick. You're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it.
0: All right, Andy. John Wick Chapter 2. That's where we are. We're talking about John Wick Chapter 2. We're in the middle of our great franchises year and we're we're wrapping it up we're in the bottom half and, and uh, john wick is a big one i gotta know is chapter two better than chapter one for you
1: they're on par with each other i i think it's enjoyable you know i um i like that they're continuing to build the world here with the continental and now you have uh, more of this backstory involving this uh, impossible task that John Wick had accomplished in order to get out and how he got to that point by, um, you know, having this blood oath with this um, this person that we meet in this film, uh, Santino, and uh, who, you know, that, that starts getting... Creating this bigger world where now we're getting this um, the the Camora, the kind of the Italian mafia involved into this story, and we're getting more of the Russians with uh, I mean a little bit at the beginning with like uh, uh, Vigo's brother that Peter Stormer is playing and it's it's an interesting continuation of the story, and considering I don't know, my understanding is that they really had planned on the first film being one film. They found a way to kind of develop this in an interesting way that expanded the world and continued to grow the the world building here and make it really interesting and exciting. And I, I definitely enjoyed it. But I wouldn't say I enjoy it more or less than the first one.
0: I think that's weird. And it makes you a weird person.
1: <laughs> well, do you enjoy this <laughs> one more or less than the first one? Like you're saying well, that I like... I just liked...
0: No, no, no. I know. I like this. I, I am surprised... Uh, and we can talk about why after, you know, after the break. But uh, I'm just surprised because this one is so bent on world building that I didn't know what I was going to get with your reaction to this movie, because one, it expands the world significantly. But two, to your point. One was supposed to be one. Given that, does this feel shoehorned on to the John Wick franchise? And I think that is sort of the central question of whether or not Chapter Two, Chapter One, works as something that picks up almost directly after the last film. So I didn't know what I was going to get with you and and your response to this movie, and and uh, I'm ex- I'm excited that it didn't go down. That, let's say that because you were I, I was already more bullish on this on this franchise than you were. So I'm excited that you still have some measure of enthusiasm for the wick. But do you like
1: this film better or worse than the first film? I guess we'll have to see during our ratings. Oh, oh you're terrible. Well, this film, when it came out, no surprise, rated R for strong violence throughout some language and brief nudity. Actually, let's start our conversation there with the nudity. I think it's interesting for a <laughs> franchise that is so, uh, hell bent on making, uh, it as, as violent as possible with a lot of, uh, amazing stunts, a lot of gun work. Um, uh, just, I mean, it's really a violent franchise and then allowing it to keep the R rating specifically for the violence and really limiting the nudity to no nudity. It's just like, I mean, we have our Italian head of the Camorra, Gianna, who John basically has to come and assassinate her uh, because of this blood oath that he made with Santino in order to uh, accomplish his impossible task. And he doesn't want to do this, but he has to, and she understands it, but she refuses to let him, and she kills herself instead, and then he shoots her in the head. Um, But she does so by stripping naked, hopping into her giant bathtub. I don't know, is it a bathtub at that point? It's just kind of a swimming, mini swimming pool. Almost a pool. It's it's a mini pool. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, slits her wrists. Um, But they do it in a way where we're never really seeing uh, the nudity. And I'm not. Uh, I'm not complaining, like, how dare they not show the nudity, but I found it so interesting in a film that's like, you know what, it's going to be rated R anyway, (laughs) because of all the stuff that they're doing, that they choose to specifically say, our R rating is going to be just for the violence. It's not going to be because of this, because we're seeing this naked woman here. I found that to be interesting. And... Um I don't know, I, I what are your thoughts on that decision?
0: Yeah, I once again, like uh, it just feels like it shines a light on on the prudishness of sort of Western domestic audiences, <laughs> like that that we're so terrified of nudity, but we'll see like we'll show you the inside of somebody's brains, but we won't show you know you know what I mean like it it just feels strange It, it, it feels strange to me, but do you think that was their reason? I don't know. Part of me, like, I look at Stahelski and, like, this is one of the things that I think is a real showcase of this movie is it's it's another stunt person's film, right? Like, this is a movie that showcases stunts and fighting and, and it does it in a way that I think, you know, compared to the first movie is even more of a stunt person's film because the camera sits way far back on a lot of really principal fight choreography. It lets you see everything. It lets you really showcase what these people are about. And I think, to your point, like... Putting some nudity in there is kind of a distraction from what this movie exists to do. Like this is the this is the movie's reason for being, and maybe nudity is a distraction of it. But when you put almost nudity and don't show like the the whole and don't show it, does it does it ever sort of take you out of a particular scene? This is a person who took off her clothes to get in a bathtub, and it was shot in you know in, intentionally to keep it sort of uh, obscured, and is that weird
1: i don't know it it feels a little weird well, it just felt felt intentional to me and uh and to that end, i don't know if that was i i'm not exactly sure directorially uh if they were just saying that's not john's world John's world isn't about you know hot babes and and nudity. his world is violence, and so by choosing to. Have her death as a naked woman in a tub be shot largely from um, you know in a way where we're either close enough where we're not seeing it's cropping everything off or we're so far away that you just can't see anything. Everything's obscure. I, yeah. I found it to be just an interesting decision on his part to say our film is not about that. It is just about this world of violence that these people inhabit, of which of which she is a part too, right? Of course, of course. But,
0: you know, there there is a part about um, that scene that I think is actually quite special for his character that, you know, after she slits her wrist and she, you know, relaxes back into the tub, you know, stigmata style. Right. She he goes around to the backside and holds her hand like that is a that's more intimate than any sequence of nudity we could be shown, right? Is it that is the value that he puts on this relationship and in terms of world building, the weight it puts on the value of the blood marker, which is an artifact of John Wick 2 that is new and uh, I, I think demonstrates his allegiance to it. And I think that is a, that makes this really complicated in a way that I think is is satisfying above and beyond any potential sort of purience.
1: Yeah, no, I I it, I think it all boils down to the world building here. I mean, we had a lot of women in um, skimpy swimsuits in the last film when we went to uh, Alfie Allen's spa that he you know they were all hanging out in, right? But again, it wasn't specifically about that. It was really about Kind of the life of de- debauchery that he was leading. And maybe that's why, to a certain extent, he didn't fit into the world as well as his dad. Yeah. Um, because he was, he clearly was this idiot child who just didn't understand the bigger picture. And obviously that kind of kicks this whole franchise off. And so in this film, yeah, it's not about that. And I do think that's really interesting. And that hand holding scene, the world building we have, the relationship, her understanding of why John is there. As soon as she says, as soon as he explains, you know, it's because of the, um, the, yeah, I have no choice. Yeah. I have no choice because of your brother. She gets it and she then chooses to make her own choice. And I, I just found it to be a really fascinating way for this story to evolve and. For these characters to play. So I, I, it's it definitely is an interesting world. So
0: I have I have a question. Um, speaking of the world building, John Wick is allegiant to the rules of the world in which he inhabits. Right. We agree. For the most
1: part. Obviously, at the end, he's not so allegiant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> less allegiant, less <laughs> allegiant over time. I'm curious at the beginning I I mean I and and it was clearly enough for me because I love this movie. Like I I think it's I think it's great. But it it is curious to me on this watch that the call to action, the the hero refusing the call when Santonio or D'Antonio Santino D'Antonio shows up and says I, you owe me man, you I I helped you now you have to help me by the rules we have blood marker et cetera. that John Was in a place where he would say no. He's allegiant to every other bullet in the rule book, but here he says no. And every case that is made by other characters throughout the movie is, why are you surprised that he blew up your damn house? Like how he could have, he should have killed you, but he didn't. Why are you surprised that this happened? And I'm not sure I ever got the point where John recognized why he did that, right? Like why did he
1: why did he say no? That's a good question and it is an element that I uh I don't know if it works that well for me that he uh that he does try saying no at that point. I don't know if it ties into the fact that that particular blood oath that he made with Santino was so that he could get out. The first film, that whole story, it wasn't necessarily him coming back, even though he's kind of like, yeah, I think I'm back. Uh, It was really to avenge his wife and uh, kind of the, the symbols of his life with her. And essentially, I felt like by the end of the film, he was trying to just completely return to his previous life and so i don't know i guess there's an element that maybe you could spin it that john was trying to tell santino i used that to get out of the life i'd like you to respect me and to not do that it did seem a little bit of a stretch that he blatantly says no like yeah it's. It is kind of a frustrating. I don't know if it's frustrating, but it is one of those things that it does make you scratch your head. I just think that he was it, a little in bit. his head. Yeah, in his head, I think he was just trying to say, you know what? I really do want to be done with this. Um, I. You know, of course, at the start of the film, he's not done with it. He's still.
0: He's not done with it. <laughs> and that's the problem that this is. I, and I know I recognize this is a Watsonian Doylist kind of approach to the story. But if we're looking at it from like what his motivation is, how well does the film convince me that his decision to say no is a rational one, given everything we saw in the last movie where he says, yeah, I think I'm back. And this thing where you to your point, he's not done from the very first shot. He's still going after his car like that's the 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 arc of the movie is says that he's back, he's back and he's here and his it like he's they've set up this set of rules where John can't like John says, I want to have cake and also eat it. And everything's going coming up, John and it the rest of the universe in which he lives does not see it that way. And I feel like the movie doesn't always make the best case that he understands that his actions are perceived by others differently than he perceives them himself
1: yeah it's i mean it is an interesting element i let's i mean since we started talking about this let's jump back just a little bit because i do also want to tie this conversation into the open of the film because my recollection of the last film is that he got his car back and then it proceeded to get like pushed off the edge of a um I don't know just some sort of a, a wall and it kind of crashed below into a giant mess. And so <laughs> I didn't think that he would want it but apparently apparently he still really did. Um uh, and apparently uh Tarasov this is um Vigo's brother that we have um played by Peter Stormare who's always fun to see. In a part that probably was shot in an afternoon. It's just like him sitting at a desk. Not much to his part, but still it's fun to see him. Right. But anyway, the whole open of the film is John trying to get his car back in a very violent way and and taking out pretty much everybody that Terasov sends at him. And until John comes into Terasov's office and uh so that he can take his car there's this exchange of words. He doesn't kill Tarasov. He says, you know, I want peace. And so I guess what we're meant to take away with the very start of the film is kind of that wrap-up of the last film. Yeah, I now have my car. I've avenged my wife. Our families are done. Let's have peace. And that's it. And now he brings his car back to Aurelio. And I, I don't know. I feel like it's almost like A post-credit scene at the end of the last film where it's like this is him finally getting all those bits and pieces that uh, that from the first film wrapped up and now he can actually retire and and everything's okay. I guess that's kind of what they're trying to set up here. But it is strange that the very next thing we get is Santino coming in, John refusing him and then Santino blowing his house up.
0: Yes. Yeah. And we need that to propel the movie forward, which is great. Again, the call you can't refuse and he refuses the call and then he can't refuse the call. And and I get it. Like it for me, that it it generally works. And more broadly, getting into the main sort of narrative of the film and getting back to the Continental and starting the engine of John Wick is is really, really great. I love how the movie opens this sort of cold open running down the street or with the guy on the bike and uh, the projection on the side of the wall uh aligned with the sound effect of the crashing motorcycle and the everything. What'd you think of that? I mean, that was a an artful way to open the movie.
1: I absolutely agree. And a great way to get us in the middle of an action sequence where we're coming yeah. in mid fight. John is already yeah. taking out Tarasov's guys trying to get his car back. It's it was a fun visceral way to kick things off. It felt very Bond esque as far as let's start with an action sequence before the story really kicks off.
0: Yeah. And let's say this movie was made for high dynamic range televisions. Like it is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful to watch and bright, vivid displays. So I, I like all that. I like that he gets the car back. I was a, a little bit dubious that
1: it was the same car. Like, well, I, that's it, the thing. It it's like, like, it was totally destroyed. It was pushed <laughs> off of a, a wall so, in the last film. Well, so, so. <laughs> Did he want it? Did Tarasov say, oh, nobody's taking this. I'll take it back and I'll fix it up. And yes. then John was like, wait a minute. And then John stole it back. Ch- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no,
0: I did not. I, I did not get that. That felt like a little bit of an easy bit of logic to jump over to get us into the second movie and an easy bit of logic to jump over, given they didn't expect to make a second film. And that's fine. It's totally fine because that's not what this movie's about. This movie is about the fighting. So that opening sequence, when John Wick is
1: attacked by 15 cabs, is kind of cool. <laughs> I just got to say, I mean, I get it. He can fight really well. But there are a lot of moments where he gets uh, hit by a car, that either head-on and then thrown <laughs> up onto the windshield, or the car spins and, and does a side swipe of him and, and sends him flying. Like, he is, like,
0: <laughs> <mover> superhuman. The- <laughs> like. <laughs> He's totally he's superhuman. When he's when he he the door gets knocked off his car and the other car hits the back of his car and throws John out of his car is extraordinary. And I mean, this is this movie is is made for the cringe,
1: uh, and it's great. I mean, it's perfect. And, well, that I mean, really gets us into the story because we get this blood oath, and uh, you know, honestly. The whole open, as far as, like, uh, having Santino blow up the house, it probably was set up that way specifically, so... We can get into the Continental and then have a conversation with Winston, once again, explaining the rules to us. That's probably why we have that, about there are only two rules, Jonathan. You can't kill on Continental grounds and you have to honor every marker. That probably is the only reason that um, that we have that hole open. Unless there is some element of wanting to kind of continue destroying John's past, because We definitely see shots as the house is burning of the photos of him and his wife, uh, you know, going up in flames and, and his phone getting broken, all of that sort of stuff. So we know there's a lot of those elements of his past that he has been clinging to that he no longer has. So there, there may be that element as well. And that, that is going to continually push him into a story where nobody wants him to retire. They want him to be, somebody that they can actively kind of pursue. The, as we
0: know from glorious subtitling again, Boogeyman.
1: Oh, and again, Boogeyman equals Baba Yaga, not Boogeyman killed by Baba Yaga. Just right. Just clarifying. Boogeyman is Baba Yaga. Yes. Right. Uh,
0: Okay. So uh, a couple of larger world points that are going to cause me to skip forward and just reflect on what kind of universe John lives in. In the first movie, I feel like we, that you could make the case that this is a universe, the same universe in which we live, but there are some hidden things going on in and around it that we don't, that we don't get to see. Like there's this mysterious continental hotel and, and that just exists and it's fine. Right. I, this movie, I think puts all that to rest that John, the John Wick cinematic universe is in a completely, different universe from the one in which we live and it is called to case when (laughs) when he's talking to the manager and the entire plaza is filled with other assassins like it's not just in the continental but it's the entire visible spectrum for the audience is filled with people who are also assassins all of the running when the call goes out and they issue the john wick order 66 right that it is uh everybody on every park bench has a gun or a knife or is a sumo wrestler with uh intent to kill that is uh amazing and uh, kind of perfect once you wrap your head around it. It uh, And for me, it, it took a couple of viewings to actually get to that point of what they were trying to do. How did, how did that expansiveness of the world of the Assassins uh,
1: uh, hit you? I mean, I, I definitely get your point. I don't know. It ends up creating a world where you wonder, is this just a world of Assassins? Like, maybe... <laughs> maybe it's a different place where everybody is really being hired to kill other people, you know? And and so it's not really a surprise because, like, when the calls go out, it's like every single person that happens to be around is getting a call to go fight John Wick, the lady playing the uh, violin in the subway. Like, everybody's getting a call. It's like, is really everybody in this place an assassin? Like, it plays uh, in a way where I think it's, pretty interesting but the world it's creating is so expansive it does make you wonder what do other people do in this world yeah you know because that uh, you never see any of them
0: <laughs> you know and, and i'll just say the thing that strikes me with this universe as i watch these movies again is that it really is an interesting parallel to and uh, to bear with me parallel to the world we do live in where uh things come out on the internet Everybody has a phone. Everybody sees it all at once. And a significant portion of the people who receive it decide to weaponize it. And in John Wick's universe, that's, uh, you know, those are bullets and knives and things like that. But but we live in a world where everybody's bullets and knives are, you know, quips and insults and attacks on the Internet. And that's kind of where John Wick lives. Like this is it 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 plays for an interesting metaphor for me to living online and adapting to to kind of online um, online existence for us that everything can be weaponized. And that's what John Wick does. He just does it with stuff instead of, you know, words and ideas and doxing and all of that passwords. What do you think? Is that too far?
1: I guess I'm not really sure where to take it as far as like what they're doing with this world, because I mean, I just don't know what else is in this world. Like we've literally seen nothing I'm trying to think. Is there anything we've seen in this world that doesn't involve the assassins? And I just like even like has he ever been in a cab or something? Like was there a scene where he's in the back of a cab or something? I can't remember. But I'm just like I know. he's
0: in a he's in a limo at one point, right? He's he's driven around. He um,
1: so what are the things? There's his wife, and there are her doctors in the first film. Yeah. Like we yep. see those people. He's on, the, as people he gets, uh, he's on the subway in this movie.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean they were in that train car, we can only we were only given visibility of him and other assassin. It's not like everybody in the train was an assassin and they all seem to, you know, vacate
1: the train at that last stop. Yeah, right. Um although I will say they sat there for much longer than I would have. <laughs> so, like, When people started, I'm like, are they still sitting? Like, I would think that they would be moving (laughs) much faster to get out of the way than they were. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, I don't know. I I guess I definitely, um, there's obviously a world. They're not saying it is just a world of assassins. It is interesting, though, how we end up just seeing so little of that world. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like we've been in a number of clubs in these films and those people do run when people start shooting and stuff like that. Um, So, I mean, there are times, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of the world here that um, I just feel like they're leaving out because they really want to just focus on this specific stuff. And I don't know if that's a problem. I think it's fine. It does just make make you wonder, though, at some point. How how frighteningly expansive is this world?
0: Well, exactly, and and that's one of the things about this movie that's interesting. Like when when it goes all spy you love spy you love me, and they go to like Egypt or whatever. And you know, I feel like like taking it to the ruins, taking it to Italy, to Rome, like doing all of that, uh, all of that, and showing us the same mechanisms that exist in all of these other locations. Like everybody accepts the gold coins, and they keep minting new gold coins, and it's all really really great but it the the fact that this is so pervasive that at any any moment you could you know spit and hit somebody who's in the trade right in the assassin trade i think is really an an interesting exploration on you know the invisibility of so many artifacts of culture that we don't actually notice day to day like the stuff we don't see when we're walking the dog you know like who knows if there's an assassin walking the dog behind me i i'm not the target who cares And uh, I I think that that's interesting. Right, right, right. And it makes me like
1: get a whole new view on Somaliers. (laughs) Should we talk more about the characters, the world, the fights? Where do you want to go? I'd like to
0: talk about, uh, you know, I, I brought up The Spy Who Loved Me, but I do that intentionally, not as a gag, because so much of this of this movie starts to fall into the mold of a more traditional sort of spy or bond uh, kind of model. He is removed of all the accoutrements of his trade. He's trying to uh, avoid things. But once he gets back into it, he's got to go see Q and M and he's got to go. He's got to get his goodies. He gets his bulletproof fabric. He gets his guns. um, And sure, they dance around it by talking about meals. You know, I want the main course. I want dessert. And and everybody seems to know what all the sub Text means, but ultimately he is outfitting himself for war in this really subtle, subdued way that only John Wick can do. What did you think of the sort of canon of battle that exists in, in this particular montage sequence that we get in in number two, that we didn't get in number one?
1: It's definitely fun. Like we're seeing um I'm trying to think how many different people he goes to here. I mean, there is uh Peter Serafinawitz um the clothing uh, guy the, the, yeah, the, the map tailor, guy the weapon guy uh, map um, guy right 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 yeah yeah it, maybe it's just those three i think um, it's those three it's i mean it is kind of it it's it fits in i mean i guess that's the thing like all of these different bits tie in to kind of help create this world in a much more expansive way than normally we would see and and so i think it is interesting that it's i mean like how does peter Serafinowitz stay in business like just selling weapons to these these assassins again it speaks to how large this world is and the tailor who ta- who tailors clothing with uh like the the bulletproof linings sewn into them so you can have these fabulous suits yes you're still going to feel it you're not wearing a bulletproof vest underneath it but uh, you're not going to get shot. And so it's like, okay, interesting. Like we're, they're definitely creating a very fascinating world. That's born to fight, born to, um, you know, have these massive stunt scenes while still looking great. And I think all of this, I mean, having, especially Peter Serafinowitz, who has that kind of British, you know, raising his nose sort of presence anyway, like there's something about him that I just, I like, he fits into that sort of role it speaks to what they're painting of this world as kind of an elite world. And that is something that I think is interesting, especially because not only are we painting this elite world of these assassins, I mean, they're ridiculous as far as like the fancy clothes they're wearing, these places that they're partying, like all of this stuff is such high-end 1% sort of assassin world. And then on the flip side, we have the Bowery King with uh, uh Lawrence Fishburne and the homeless population that he employs as almost like the opposite side of all of that and so i don't know i i found that to be one of the things that's most interesting speaking to kind of your point about the way that they're kind of creating these different um people that he needs to talk to it feels so upper crust that it I guess maybe purposefully so, so that when he does have this fall from grace at a certain point after he kills Gianna and he has to flee, that he ends up essentially getting helped by the the homeless population but but look at the the
0: artifice of the homeless population too like even the guy sitting on the you know he initially goes to that uh says you know take me to him i need to see him tell him it's john wick and that guy has a a you know a, a fine high powerful high powered weapon under his uh, under his stack of garbage and shoots those other assassins that are coming after him and then we go underground and Fishburne takes off his ratty jacket and puts puts on a silk day robe right like It's all artifice under the, this sort of auspices of the machine of the assassins. And, and again, the, the sort of inescapable power of that which is invisible, that which is running the world that we can't see, that we don't get to see. So, I mean, it's, it's a similar vibe to the Kingsman, right? Uh, it's a similar, uh, like we, I, I feel like it's a, it is a unique take. Um, but it's, it's certainly, you know, it's something that's
1: playing in a space that we've, we've played in before. Well, that's a good comparison, actually, the Kingsman, because the, the first film that we had set up, there is this world. We don't have a full sense of it, but clearly there are Russian crime bosses and they talk about the high table and stuff. So you're getting sense of, okay, there's something bigger going on here. And now we're getting more. Okay. There's this high table. There are these, I think they said there are 12. People who seat at the high table, right? The twelve crime bosses. Yeah, I think there were the
0: three families and four of each, or something.
1: So yeah, so something like that. And then there's that one guy who really wants in, and I was like, is his story going to continue? Because it it piqued my curiosity enough, but then they never did anything of that. That's Mister Coney who right. pops in a few times. Um, But anyway, yeah, so Gianni and uh, or Gianna and Santino's dad dies. Gianna gets the seat at the table. Her brother wants it. That's the thing that spurs on this whole thing. He wants the seat at the high table. And then John realizes if he gets that, that which is why he goes after Santino after he um, follows through on on clearing the blood oath. that, he's going to basically take over New York and destroy all of that. And so that kind of spurs our story, like the second half of our story on after Gianna is killed. But we're getting this high table. We're getting all of these different crime bosses and these crime groups. And we, but then also like the Bowery King is like, is he, I didn't get an impression that he was one of the 12 crime bosses. He's just kind of his own thing. But we're setting up this world that is more expansive than we've seen at this point. And so it does make you wonder. And I honestly, I can remember Nothing about the third film except for a fight in a library. Like, that's really where my brain... Like, I just... These films kind of disappear for me because it's just so much of this, like, this... It's fun fighting. It's fun world building. But it's also... I just... I don't know. It doesn't stick for some reason. But so I'm I'm trying to remember. Like, how much more of the crime families, these 12 bosses, the high table, how much more do we get as the story continues. And by the time we get to the fourth one and the promised fifth one, like, where are we going to be going with all of this? Is it going to be something that they continue developing? Or is this kind of as developed as it gets? I just, I'm curious.
0: And I I feel like I haven't seen the third one as as many times as I've certainly as I've seen the first one. And so my memory of it is weirdly a little shaky, particularly after watching these two in so close uh, proximity. I, I know that you know, we go even further into this world, um, and uh, I I don't have a real negative memory of it, sense memory of it, but I'm excited to watch it and see where we go with four. I think uh, I'm still at this point. I'm still very much in for John Wick.
1: Oh yeah, I'm. I mean, I I definitely enjoy the films. I don't I don't uh, have issues. Yeah, we talk
0: about use
1: of color to
0: move us through the movie? I find this movie is more opinionated even than the first one in terms of color timing and lighting for to move us through locations.
1: Did you get that sense? We're definitely getting a lot of neon, like a continuation of this exploration. And I found it to be just beautiful. Like this film is just stunning to look at. Uh, Dan Lauston, a Danish cinematographer has joined the team as the cinematographer here. He had worked with like Ola Borndal on things like night watch and Guillermo del Toro starting with Mimic, um, somebody who's done a lot of really beautiful films and coming into this world here uh, through the rest of them up, up to this point. And I love the way that this film looks. It's just gorgeous. And not only is the film gorgeous, but they find locations that are just stunning to look at, especially when they shoot them the way they do. By the time we get to the museum and we're in the that hall of mirrors and that reflections place. I mean, it is just, it's stunning. It's just absolutely stunning to kind of watch the way that they craft this. And all I can think about when I'm watching a scene like that or a sequence like that is how the hell are they shooting this and not accidentally catching cameras anywhere, or maybe they did and they just cleaned it all up in post, but it's just extraordinary. Like I, I can only imagine how complicated it was because it's just like, there are mirrors everywhere and they're spinning mirrors and like what a an amazing location to kind of stage this uh, confrontation that john has with Ares, the the mute assassin
0: this is a new line of Ari cameras that are all made of mirrors so you can't see them ever in all of mirrors <laughs> you didn't know that that's a new bit of technology i just taught you about
1: that's, that's right you know what's uh, <laughs> funny i i just mentioned Ares and Having just watched the uh the Raid films earlier in our season, yes. I instantly went to uh, the second film there because they also had a, a mute assassin in that film and I, I find that to be an interesting um element of this of this film.
0: What uh, okay, so what did you think of the the mute our mute assassin in this movie?
1: Oh, I, I thought she was great. Uh, like really interesting character the way that she's working with santino and uh, playing that and just i it made for fun play with language as far as the way she used her sign language to sign paired with her middle finger when appropriate to really (laughs) just emphasize stuff it was so fun to watch and of course she gets the great subtitles too i just i really enjoyed ruby rose as that character i um you know i probably enjoyed her a little more than common as cassian who um he worked with gianna um although i i found those two a great pairing of villains uh, are not really villains. I mean, they are. They're they're just like bodyguards, essentially, that John has to get through to get to the uh, to the people they're protecting. I enjoyed those characters a lot in this film. We obviously
0: have talked about Ruby Rose. Uh, given her performance in Pitch Perfect three, she was also a Batwoman in the first uh, first season of that, and went through some real. I think. Physical troubles. I think she was injured and, and couldn't get back up to health to, to take on the, the following season. So she was replaced in that. But she's, I think she is such an interesting looking person. You know, her performances always have such character and she's really good at sinister kind of presentation. I think she can really pull that off. I you know I'm I'm not sure what I think about having a uh, having a a hearing actor in this kind of a role I think there are a lot of there you know maybe it wasn't as even as vogue when this movie came out to to um you know cast you know for the for the particular role but I know there are a lot of actors we've certainly learned more and more actors are are uh, you know certainly capable of of uh, performing in roles like this and who actually have that shared lived experience I, I don't know. She was really great, and I think uh, there are other options to for casting roles like this. If if that was really the important part of this character, they they could have cast it better. Oh, so you didn't like her? I did. I like her. She was great. I liked her, and she was great. And I also wonder if a uh, a hearing impaired actor would have been. Uh, a more interesting character i always i watched her and i think after watching movies like coda like i felt like her sign was uh artifice like i because i know she's a hearing actor and so as i, I just she she it took me out of it a little bit and so i was wondering why did they make her why did they make her hearing impaired what was the purpose of that
1: I, I don't know. I guess I just found it to be an interesting character element. You know, I, I enjoyed the idea that it was a mute assassin. And um, I don't know. I thought she was pretty interesting. I didn't think that she was deaf. She's just mute. So um, she can hear when people yeah, that's are talking a point. to her. She can hear uh, when people talking to her, but she speak. can't speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Who knows? Maybe she had her tongue cut out by somebody in uh, her job previously.
0: Yes, yes. I'm going to go with that. That actually makes everything work. <laughs> he has no tongue. Ruby Rose, that part where she played with no tongue.
1: Yes, right. Yeah, all right. Um, harder to find an actor to fit that.
0: I wonder who would do it. You know, what's his name? Fury pulled his tooth out. I'll bet he'd cut his tongue out.
1: <laughs> um. I, you know, I. I also <laughs> like that they continue doing world building where when he does go to Rome, he goes to the Rome continental hotel and yes. that's where we meet franco nero who is the continental owner over there who has to interrupt i liked it when uh, he has to interrupt the fight that john and cassian are are doing which and they accidentally bring into the continental before julius stops them and gives them their stern reminder uh, which of course is another setup for where we go with the end of this film where john pursues uh after killing Ares, he pursues santino until Santino flees into the continental and this is back in New York of course and uh John walks in sees Santino sitting there having a drink sees uh Ian McShane as Winston saying John don't do anything you're going to get in trouble and then John is basically like screw that pulls out his gun shoots uh shoots uh yeah. Santino and thus Uh, basically avenging himself, but going to your point about the decision John makes early in the film to try to get away from having to stick with the rules. This is again, John saying, you know what? I'm not going to stick with the rules here. I'm, I am so upset and I uh, am really irritated with Santino. I'm going to kill him anyway, knowing full well that now he is excommunicado and uh, Winston at least gives him an hour to uh, give him a head start to allow him to kind of start running before everybody in the world starts chasing him. And that is where the film leaves us ending on a cliffhanger, which is interesting. That's that's to me, filmmakers saying people liked our movie so much, the first film. We're going to continue this world yeah. and we're going to end it on a cliffhanger, which pretty much you know forces the studio to say, we'll give you the money already to make the third one
0: yeah i dare you
1: to not let us have a a third chapter i triple dog dare you i mean how do you think uh, so speaking to the point earlier about john choosing to or trying to get out of having to follow the rules as far as not wanting to follow through on his blood oath with uh, santino how does the end play for you as far as john coming in breaking the rules Blatantly, right in front of Winston, by killing Santino. Um, like, do you like do you like all this?
0: I I do because at that moment it's a moment of um, of I, I I imagine it's a moment of heightened emotion. Right, he's been uh, this this has been his mission, and he is not going to let Santino cheat by hanging out and eating all this wonderful food in the Continental for as long as he can, essentially to barricade himself in the the hotel. And so for John to act on emotion is an outsized uh, sort of blip in his character arc and I believe it. I believe he would have done it. I would have done I would have done the same, right? Like I I'm not if if I were in a universe and I were an assassin and this were easy for me to kill people, then It would. I can totally see how John Wick would get there. It doesn't take me out of the film. Different than the opening, when John is in his home and he's in a place of comfort and he's being confronted and he has time to stop and think about the implications of what he's doing, I get the feeling that John is not thinking about the implications of what he's doing here.
1: It's it's definitely a a moment of emotion that he has here. And I suppose it's his way of... uh, I don't want to say rubbing his rubbing uh, Santino's nose in it, but maybe thumbing his nose. I don't know if that's right either. He is basically, Santino is the one who forced him into this whole thing. Right. It is kind of his way of telling Santino, I want it out. I was willing to break the rules. I was trying to break the rules so that I didn't have to follow through with you. Yeah. And now he gets to this place where he's basically saying, I am so upset at everything that you have forced me into that I don't care anymore. I'm going to willingly break the rules just so I can kill you. It's an interesting shift in his um, his focus and the way that he's seeing everything at that point. I, I find it to be I find it actually works quite well, and you know, I—I I, that was one thing I really enjoyed about this film is that they end it this way. They—they they choose this uh, the way to kind of have it end, and plus, it gives us that fantastic final confer, uh, conversation between Winston and John um, as they're uh, talking. Like, there's some just great lines there as as they're wrapping up the film.
0: So there are two things that go on, just just mechanical things in terms of of what they've introduced with the the world and. Uh, one is the contract, right, that Santino, I think justifiably so. This was a bit that I I, I believed. Santino takes out this seven million dollar. What was it? Was it a contract? I can't remember what the word is that they use all of a sudden. Some note or something. He calls the operator, the 1950s operator who's all tattooed, which I thought was great. And he takes out this this note against John after discovering that John has killed. His sister. So, what kind of a brother would I be if I did not attempt to avenge my sister's death? Right. That was great. And we're, we're in the tunnels. John is accosted by, uh, Ruby Rose and her minions. And it's the blue tunnel, beautiful color sc- uh, scope. And, uh, John has planted all the weapons there. And then he, there's a great fight. And we discover that Santino has called out this note. Everybody's out to get John. Okay. I buy that what I struggle with is Ian McShane calling John excommunicado is excommunicado inextricably linked to like a renewal of the contract or because I, what I thought was excommunicado just meant you can't use the services of the continental. You are suddenly a free agent. Good luck and Godspeed to you. But it felt like things got appreciably worse once he went, excommunicado, and that leads us to the cliffhanger where everybody on in the park is suddenly an assassin, and they're all chasing him. How did that
1: work? No, you're forgetting that John is excommunicado. That just means he has no privilege anymore with right. the Continental or anything that the Continental manages or controls. But Because he kills uh, Santino, the Camorra, which is the Italian mafia family, they double the contract on John. So he has a $14 million contract on his head now. So that's why everybody is going after him. It has nothing to do with him being a Sportacotta. It just makes it easier for people to kill him now because he really has no safe place to hide.
0: That makes sense. You're right. I did. I forgot that it was the doubling of the bounty, and and so that wasn't Ian McShane's doing. No, Ian McShane was just saying John is is, is no longer uses the Continental Services internationally, and that makes him an even more desirable target for all the
1: people seeking the bounty. Exactly, because otherwise he could do it exactly Santino was trying to do and just hole up in the Continental for as long as his coins last him um, and and not have to uh, worry about getting assassinated. Got it. Yeah, that makes total sense. In the scope of an action film, we should talk about action sequences that we liked. And also, just I think a key thing to talk about in a film like this where it's, it's, it's this big action uh, franchise I feel like, and I don't know if we really talked about this in the last film, but any catchy lines, like are there lines that stand out to you like, oh, <laughs> yes. that is that is so kick-ass the way that they just said that. Anything stand out for yes. you as far as fights or lines? Somebody please get this man a gun. <laughs> I love it.
0: Lawrence Fishburne is amazing and giving him lines like this are great and consider it a professional courtesy right i think those are uh those are some some (laughs) great beats uh in in the film that gives us uh, that that give us a uh just a little taste of who these characters are but but for for my money this is Lawrence fishburne's power line uh in in this film and and um and I I love it. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk lines before you talk uh, action scenes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely like that, too. And I suppose that comes off of uh, John. What did John say right before uh, Lawrence Fishburne says that? He says something like, yeah, do you want a war or do you just want to give me a gun? That's what it is. I like that one. Also, I, I think... Well, one, I just have to say, anytime Ian McShane calls him Jonathan, like, it's just, it sings to me. I love the way that that name comes out of Ian McShane's mouth. It is just perfect. Uh, but the other line I think that stuck with me is Winston when he says, You stabbed the devil in the back. To him this isn't vengeance, this is justice. Like, I, I think he's got a few great lines like that that worked really well.
0: I, and, um, oh, we, <laughs> was he, he, yes, he was a good dog. Right. That's, I, I love the. I love the fact that that, you know, this this facility does not have kennel services. I would, however, take on the responsibility personally. I just love that that bit of character uh, development that brings those two guys closer together, which ends up being important. So, um, in terms of action sequences, I, you said you weren't keen on common, but that is really the, the big extended, you know, beat over beat fight sequence and gives us lots of different locations and styles and knives and guns and wrestling and punching and hitting and all the different things. And we're on stairs or we're in subways or we're in like all kinds of different locations. Uh, I thought the fight was incredibly well orchestrated and, uh, and appropriately brutal and extensive, I I didn't have a problem with it.
1: I'm not saying I had a problem with the fight sequence. I'm just saying, as far as the characters go, I preferred Ares over Cassian. I just I don't know. There's something about her presence I just found her to be a little more interesting to me. But I do like Cassian in the part, and he and Keanu Reeves are fantastic at going toe-to-toe. I really liked the two of them on screen together. For sure. um, I'm trying to look through my notes here as far as the different fights. I did think it was funny. This is just a side note going back to Aries but there was a lot of like rattlesnake sounds every time she was on screen like you know I thought that was just kind of a funny <laughs> uh audible note uh yeah the fight sequence from the uh the catacombs all the way out into the street, uh, that was a very extended fight, as you are just talking about. Um, I kind of liked the montage. I thought that was fun when all the different hitmen, hit people were yes. after John, and that is one where we actually do get to see him take somebody out with a pencil, which was mm-hmm. horrifying to watch. Yes, just Absolutely horrifying. You but know, that was... to that
0: point, Andy, I, I want to, I, I just want to reflect a minute on that that point, because every fight in this movie, in addition to and I think the pencil sequence is exists in this movie for this purpose. Every fight in this movie, every assassination, he goes and he kills Dentino uh, in the middle of the Continental, becomes a part of the Baba Yaga legacy. Right. You can kind of imagine in 10 years, new assassins saying, you know, he once killed a guy right in the Continental. That's the kind of brazen uh, you know, mystery guy, the Baba Yaga is. He's the guy you send when you have to kill somebody in the Continental. That's, that's his legacy. And, and so in that regard, like we're part, part of me sees this movie as watching history unfold in the scope of this movie and these action sequences. That pencil sequence is exactly that. We heard the story of the pencil. Now we get to see a new pencil story that will become somebody else's story
1: in another franchise. I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like it. Plus, like, the guy who, uh, like, was attacking him like a sumo wrestler. You know, like, there were some yes. interesting people, like, had yeah, the violinist. Like, there were interesting people through that montage that allowed it to be, again, not just a whole bunch of gunplay and stuff. But, I mean, going to my favorite, though, I, I as much as I love Asukins, I mean, it really has to be just the stunningly beautiful fight in the museum. Like, from the minute he comes in trying to take out uh, Santino all the way through going down into the mirror room and then uh kind of continuing on from there it just i mean it was just absolutely stunning to kind of watch that just the way that they crafted that it really just was very beautiful so that would be my favorite uh, the mirror sequence in terms of the the
0: production of it is beautiful but that's i mean that's kind of the big final sequence right it's that mirror sequence yeah so is that that in terms of that's not the high point for you i'm I'd be surprised. Oh, no, that's what that. I just
1: said. That was my favorite sequence. Oh, that that counts. Okay, okay.
0: Just, the, the mirrors, specifically the mirrors.
1: Very yeah, the, the entire mirrors. part of the museum. Yeah, the mirrors are in the museum. Everybody they knows are. that. They are. They go downstairs Everybody, to the, yeah, the so mirrors. Silly. They take the elevator. Everybody knows. The mirrored that. elevator down into the mirrors. That's right. <laughs> so many mirrors. Okay, that's all I got. You got anything else? All right. Nope. All right. Well, we will be right back. But first, our credits.
0: The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM Engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ace, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we would deeply appreciate it if you would consider doing just that for our show.
1: All right, Andy, how to do it award season? It did okay for itself. Four wins, 13 other nominations. At the Golden Schmoes, uh, John Wick Chapter 2 did win Coolest Character for John Wick. So that's always nice. At the Taurus World Stunt Awards, this is, again, those fantastic awards that recognize the stunt performers. And we love them. We love them for it because, uh, you know, more people who do this should be recognized for the incredible and sometimes painful work that they do um this film did not end up winning any but it was nominated for four it uh, was nominated for best stunt coordinator and or second unit director for claudio pacifico but lost to wonder woman best fight john wick uh was nominated for the sequence when john fights an attacker in a european city using weapons and martial arts the fight features a multiple story stairfall by both stunt performers so that's the fight with cassian Uh, Lost to Atomic Blonde, though, for the eight-minute fight scene in the stairwell, made to look like it was one continuous shot and featured martial arts, fight choreography, multiple stairfalls, hard hits, and big throws. The stunt double for the lead actress did all of the falls and crashes, including stairfalls, smashing into a bookcase, and being thrown onto a table. So there's that. So there's that. It's also nominated for Best Work with a Vehicle when John drives his vintage Mustang through a warehouse and around a shipping dock while evading bad guys in yellow cabs and a motorcyclist. High-speed maneuvers, crashes, and drifts are featured, but lost to Baby Driver when the red Subaru performs aggressive driving maneuvers to outrun and with. Police in the wake of a bank heist, the Subaru drives through city streets, drifting through intersections and turns and causing other cars to crash in its wake. CGI was only used to add a vehicle in an alley where the lead car does a slide and evades a real reversing truck at a real parked car- truck at the end of the alley. Which was crazy. It was let's crazy. Just say. That was fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Last but not least, it was nominated for Hardest Hit. This is when the stuntman is sent flying into a steel beam after being hit by John Wick's Mustang. The stuntman was ratcheted into a padded beam, and the vehicle was CGI. Lost to the film Kidnap, this is when the stuntwoman is hit by a vehicle, sending her rolling up the windshield. As the vehicle makes a turn, the stunt performer falls to the pavement. No wires were used for the stunt. Oh, God. I wonder, like, at the Taurus Stunt Awards, like, I wonder when they're, like, presenting these, if they actually show, like, the raw footage so you can see what the stunt looked like without any of those other elements added. Because that would be interesting to see how these things played out.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Wow. Yeah, pretty crazy. But anyway.
0: uh, It's crazy. Uh, it's amazing. Solid work. So it, you, let's let's talk about the numbers, how to do it at the box office.
1: Well, Stahelski, Leach, and Reeves got an increase in budget for around two, going up from 30 to $40 million, or $48.8 million in today's dollars. The movie opened February 10, 2017, opposite Fifty Shades Darker and the Lego Batman movie. This opened in third place and stayed in the top ten for six weeks. It did better than the first one, earning $92 million domestically and $79.5 million internationally for a total gross of $209.3 million. That lands this chapter with an adjusted profit per finish minute, of 1.3 million, doubling what the first film did.
0: All right. Just hearing all that gives me gives me the, the, the little shivers of anticipation for, for JWP3. C3. JWC3. C3P. C- <laughs> okay. You're right. C3BM. <laughs> C3PB PBM.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's uh I'm 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 looking forward to jumping back into the world for sure. But I did have a question because So the first film was not chapter one. And then with this film, they decided, okay, it was kind of chapter one. We just didn't call it chapter one because we didn't know we were going to have all these other chapters. Do you like that they are calling these like chapters as opposed to just sequels, like as opposed to John Wick 2? This is actually chapter two. Do you like the way that they're choosing the naming conventions?
0: I think it's charming. I really do. And I think it's, it's an interesting throwback, giving all of the sort of modernity at work in this movie. It also celebrates the kind of arcane structures of, and the hierarchies of the high table and the, the, uh, the sort of royalty in the, uh, you know, that takes place in the, in the continental. It feels, Like it's it's a weird throwback to like Jane Austen by by making it more of a literary reference in terms of chapter breaks. I think it's great. It feels uh, it is a great turn off of a movie that they thought was going to be a single thing to actually make it feel like all of these movies are of a piece in a way that that few other sort of series managed to do. I love it.
1: Well, it's interesting. What do you think? I like it. I I don't have any issue. I guess my issue really comes with the next film. (laughs) They decide to add a word on uh, to that as well. But then they don't continue that, or at least it doesn't seem like they have. I haven't seen chapter four yet. But I am curious. um, We'll we'll talk about that when we get to that next time, because I'm very curious how they choose to name these and they evolve the the evolving titles from john wick john wick chapter two john wick chapter three parabellum john wick chapter four it's it's curious what what they're doing so yeah yeah well i'm here for chapters that's right well speaking of we'll be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie john wick chapter three parabellum
0: What have you done? To dream the impossible dream. There is no escape for you. The High Table wants your life.
1: To the Tell me what you want. Passage. I can't help you. To read. Do you expect
0: him to make it out? A $14 million bounty on his head. Every in the city wants a piece of it. I say the odds are about even.
1: Dark. Five seconds.
0: John Wynn. Excommunicado in effect in three, two, one. And away we go.
1: the old days just a conversation nothing's ever just a conversation with you john Reach the unreachable
0: andy as we're recording this of course the oscars have just happened uh, we just did a show on, uh, Scream a few weeks back. And I'll tell you, Letterboxd has arrived officially in <laughs> the culture of film loving, uh, people all over the world. Letterboxd is our favorite social network for media lovers. Uh, it's now getting dropped in movies and tied into award ceremonies in fun ways. So. You can also get on the Letterboxd train just like we did uh, and if you fall in love with it, you sign up, get your account, you start tracking movies, you start writing film reviews and, and uh, connecting with other people who love films just as much as you do and you decide, hey, you know what, I'd like to ditch the ads and I'd like to support the great Kiwi team that makes this thing possible. You can sign up for a pro or patron membership and remove those ads at Letterboxd. Just use the discount code NextReel or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. You'll be taken over to the checkout page with a 20% generous, 20% discount applied to your upgrade. And don't forget, it works for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do with this
1: movie? My feelings about it are pretty comparable to the first film. So four stars and a heart. I, I certainly think it's a fun film, a fun world that they've created. I don't necessarily love the franchise, but I do really enjoy it while I'm watching it and what they've put together.
0: I went into my letterbox, and it turns out my previous review... Uh, or my previous rating of it was five stars and a heart with which is exactly what I had done for the first movie. And because I feel like these movies are of a piece, I'm going to stick with that at five stars and a heart. It didn't go down in my estimation watching it this time around, even as we're sort of pulling at various threads that that are kind of wonky. Uh, So I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to this is going to be a five star movie. I'm worried because I checked my my rating for John Wick Chapter three. I'll just leave it at that. I'm worried all of a sudden.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll find out next week. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, don't forget, visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox, and you can get your patron or pro membership. And as Pete said, it works for renewals as well. Remember, we also have a membership program. You can go to thenextreel.com slash membership. You can learn about getting ad-free episodes. Uh, Your episodes come early. You get all sorts of bonus episodes, all sorts of great stuff. So, again, learn more at thenextreel.com slash membership. So, what did you think about John Wick Chapter 2? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in Discord, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. <laughs> Letterbox giveth Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth.
0: Mm, 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 mm. There's there is some love for this for this movie. There are people who don't get it, but there is some love for this movie. You want to go first? You want me to go first? What do you want to do?
1: Uh, there's definitely love for this film. I'll go first. I've got a three and a half by Jay, um, who has this to say: "Winston, there's a bounty for your murder for seven million dollars." John Wick, blushing, because I'm worth it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm uh, I'm going with a four-star from Brat who says, Yes, I'm officially on the John Wick train. Chapter 2 is unafraid to revel in the silence of its fight scenes, only punctuated by punches and grunts instead of relying on cloying fast-paced music to incite excitement. Every fight kicked my ass, but the subway sequence in particular jammed a pencil into my aorta, and the mirror room duel yanked it right out. I'm on the ground, hemorrhaging Blood, but I'm completely at peace with dying at the hands of Mister John Wick. In fact, I'd prefer it. Four stars from Brad. <laughs> nice, <laughs> so good. Uh, thanks, Letterboxed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022.